Welcome to the first episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman and this is the first of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself, edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. Welcome to this first episode, David. I trust that you are well. I am very well. Good. Now, David, in this episode, we're going to be covering the first 14 years of your life which is the period leading up to the accident, which resulted in your blindness. Now, David, I was just wondering if we could start um, with you telling us a little bit about why you've decided to do a memoir and why you've decided to use podcasting as a format for that memoir. John, um, a number of people have asked me to do a book and I've thought about it and thought, well... I don't know that I really do want to write a book. So I decided that uh, instead of having a written book, I'd do a, an audio. And uh, in my discussions with you, we came up with the idea of a podcast. And uh, I think that uh, there could be some things that will be a lot of interest to some people. But it might also put into perspective some of the changes that have happened over the last um, 50 to 60 years that have made a difference to the way that blind people live in Australia today and some of the opportunities that have been created and a number of opportunities that have been missed. Can I suggest, David, that um, as you're coming to the end of your career, that there's a bit of a changing of the guard um, of the people that were the founders of uh, disability rights, but particularly um, the rights of blind people um, in Australia, and that there's a risk that some of that historical, some of that historical knowledge will be lost. Um, Is that also a a motivator for you? Yes, it is. Um, There are several people that um, can give a, a Uh, recent history, particularly of organisations like the Blind Citizens Australia, but prior to that there's really nobody left now who can tell that story. David, I'd like to go back at this point to a time when there wasn't even a David. Um, I thought it might be interesting for people to hear a little bit um, about uh, the heritage of your family um, and a little bit about the background of your parents uh, before a, uh, a squalling young brat um, arrived, um, I'm sure very much to their, um, uh, their mutual delight. Yes, well, both my grandmothers were migrants to Australia. My maternal grandmother came from Wales at the age of 17 on her own, and my 
father's mother came from Scotland. She was a little bit older, but um, she was also on her own. She met my grandfather, who was also Scottish, when she arrived in Perth. They married, and my father was born in Perth. The family later moved to Adelaide, where he grew up. But on my mother's side, uh, my grandmother went out to a place called Winton in Western Queensland, where she married uh, a man called Robinson, who she had three children with, but he, he died. And then she married my grandfather, and she had um, seven children with him. Seven? Yep. And, wow. Um, there wasn't much to do in the Western Queensland. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of count on No, Oh, look, that's all right. We'll trust. <laughs> there was a lot. There was seven on. She may not have known how many there were. Um, and my mother was born in Western Queensland. So um, my father, who at the age of 13, left school and he went to work for Sir Sidney Kidman from the Kidman Empire. And uh, he eventually moved up into Queensland. Uh, or he went to the First World War and then after that he moved up into Queensland as a drover working on cattle stations. And he met my mother in Bullia and 19, they got married in 1933 and I was born in Bullia, Western Queensland in 1934. The life of a drover in Queensland uh, at those times, it would have been very basic, very hard. Uh, I'm sure it was and... Uh, you know, the towns were few and far between, so uh, they were working very hard. He was also a fencing contractor. In the country in those days, you had to be able to do everything because there was nobody else. So, David, that brings us to Queensland uh, and the point at which you personally enter the story. Uh, now, I understand that you're the first of five children... Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about um, your brothers and sisters. Well, yes, I'm the eldest. I was born in 1934. My brother, Cosie, he was born in 1936, and my sister, Coral, was born in 1938. Both Cosie and I were born in Bullia. Coral was born in Winton. My other two, my younger sister, she was born in 1946 in Darwin, and uh, my younger brother was born in 1954 in Darwin. Now, so there's 20 years between us. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big gap. And particularly the last one, does that mm. uh, suggest that the fifth was a bit of a surprise? I think the last two might have been surprises. Yes. As you'll realise, um, as the story goes on, um, I was not a, in Darwin when my youngest brother was born. He was born after I left Darwin. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of a sense of what they went on to do with their lives? Uh, my brother, the elder brother, he worked for the water resources in the Northern Territory. He uh, was uh, one of those people that had to go around and decide where um, bores and wells could be put down or closed up. Did a lot on Aboriginal um, settlements where putting down what they call kingship bores. So they'd put a bore down and they could get water so the uh, Aboriginal families could live in that area for that period of time. Uh, my sister, she uh, travelled a fair bit in her early days and then she married a chap in Darwin and they had a business in Darwin and stayed in Darwin. 
my younger sister, she similar story. She ma uh, married a a local man, and they had a business together in Catherine in the Northern Territory. Um, and then my youngest brother, he's the like my father. He stayed in the transport industry, and uh, even today he still runs road trains, um, mainly in the Darwin area now. But uh, he has had road trains that have gone right through with Northern Territory, Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia. Um, and he's done a lot in the mining industry with their big uh, transport. So he's he's the chip off the old block, really. So are all your siblings still alive? Yes. Uh, David, you mentioned the small town of Bulya, uh, where you were born. Um, could you tell us a little bit about where that is? Uh, and uh, what the uh, what the town of Bulya is like. Bulya is a very small town in uh, far western Queensland. Um, it's almost on the Northern Territory border, actually. Uh, when I was uh, growing up there, it was 98 miles to the nearest railhead. There was a place called the Jara, and I don't think that railhead exists anymore. So it's nearly 200 miles to Mount Isa. Uh, to the north. Um, to the east, it was 240 miles to Winton, with the next railhead. They were two track roads, they were not, not made roads, so as the ruts got deeper, they just cut another track through the bush by someone going through there, and another person followed. So we didn't see much of our trains or things like that when I was growing up. Um, I was there till 1942. I went to school for three years in a one-teacher school. Um, uh, in in the school there were all children. We had Indigenous children as well as um, the local white children. Um, race was never a problem to me because uh, I grew up uh, in the mixed race society. We had a Japanese gardener and um, there were other people of different races in that area. After we left Bulya, we went to Townsville in 1942. My father was went into the Allied Works Council because the Second World War had started. David, it's clear from what you're saying that um, you grew up in an extremely isolated uh, in, and small environment. Um, now, whilst that would have been all you knew at the time, uh, do you see that now as a, a particular or formative experience? Very much so, because we, um, we had to make our own entertainment. Um, there were other children at the same age as I was, but not a lot of us, and uh, we had a river nearby. Uh, we could go fishing, we could go swimming, but there wasn't much else to do. We didn't have any um, constructed sports activities, so we made our own entertainment, um, and we just worked around the area. We didn't think anything about it because we didn't know any different, uh, and uh, I think in many ways it was a good good way to grow up because I had no one to follow and we had to create our own opportunities. Would you look back to it now and look back at the things you did it as kids um, and think that they would be considered as dangerous or risky now and that um, you, you wouldn't be allowed now to be um, on your own and doing the sorts of things you did? I have a daughter. I can assure you that she would never allow her children to do what we did. <laughs> yes. David, you also spoke about the school um, and um, 
that it was a, a single teacher school. Now, obviously, the classes would have been small. Do you see uh, advantages and disadvantages in being um, in a in a small country school? It's hard to say because we we had a curriculum um, that we worked under the Queensland State School System. We had certain books we had to do. I try to remember there was probably only one other in the, my class. There was about 12 children at the school. It might have went up to 15 at one stage, but mostly it was around about 12. And um, the teacher was really teaching grades maybe one to five. I don't think it went much further than that. So the teacher had students from of different ages and different classes in the same room? All in the same room, yes. And so how then do they manage who's doing what? I think you have to realise that in those days teachers were much more respected than they are now and um, we were set a task to do and uh, we did it. Um, there were some cl- uh, sessions where it would have been a joint session where the teacher might be talking a bit about history or geography or something like that but uh, most of our subjects we were just given tasks to do and we did them. Uh, if we had to do reading you just read to the whole class when the others continue to do what they were doing whether they listened to you or not and um, it was just one of those things that that's how things were and and then really today it still exists in some parts of the community where we do have these small schools but of course now they have radio and audio tv so it's not a lot different i don't think it's just they use different tools and David, the um, experience as a student is often influenced by your parents. Did your parents place uh, a lot of value on a on an education? And you know, for example, were there were there books in your house? Did they read? Did they read to you, um, or were they more about what you do with your hands? And um... no, we didn't have books in our home. Um... We did have some, I imagine, some school books, but um, the only reading material we had uh, really were catalogues from um, mail order firms uh, because there was no newspaper in Bullia and uh, they did receive newspapers, but they'd be a week or two or even three weeks old by the time they arrived out there and uh, people used to read them, mainly the bulletin and um, papers like that that were weeklies. The... um, the catalogues that we received from the mail order firms that was very big we got a lot of those and we used to read about those things in that uh, i think that's where we got our reading from the school i recall the teacher did place a lot of emphasis on on uh, re- english and reading i'm not too sure that it all rubbed off but uh, it did in still into me I do read a lot and I enjoy reading now David I, I personally want to know the the young the young David Blythe was there was there the rebel was there the troublemaker uh, was there any signs uh, of the human rights activist to be in that uh, young boy uh, belting around the the little dry, hot Queensland town of Bulia. Well, I think I got in as much trouble as any 
red-blooded Australian boy. Um, I seem to remember getting the cuts quite often at school, uh, sometimes on the hand, sometimes on the behind. Um, now, cuts. Um, I'm presuming it doesn't involve a knife. You no, do, it's it a, a cane. cane. Yes. Yeah. Uh, corporal punishment was accepted in those days. And uh, although I must say that I never had a teacher who was brutal, but uh, I have had stinging fingers at various stages in my life. And as you say, corporal punishment, it was more of a, a normal thing. So was that in your home as well? To a certain extent, yes. Um, my father was uh, quite strong on on behaviour. Um, we were never stopped from talking at the table or anything like that, but uh, we were expected to eat our food and we were expected to do what we were told and uh, we had to do their chores like the washing up and things like that. We helped them, my mother. Um, I'd say we were brought up in a home where you had to do what you were told, but they weren't excessively, uh, um, the word I wanted, they weren't excessively strict. Uh, we were encouraged, really, I believe, to uh, have initiative and to use it. Oh. David, then we've, um, we've heard a bit about um, your father. Now, apart from being extremely busy uh, looking after uh, the, you and then the four more children to come. Um, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about your mother in those early days. Well my mother had a very interesting story really. Um, she had a very hard life in her early years. Um, she only had three years of formal education. She lived in, uh, born in Winton but they grew up in Bullia. Just out of Bullia, they had a property called Maxland, which was 15 miles east of Bullia. It was a sheep station. Um, there's many stories that we know of that uh, where she and her twin brother and elder sister had to sort of give up going to school to help to work on the property because of drought. They had to take ca uh, sheep from you right up into the Gulf of Carpentaria area to get food for them um, and they did that on horseback. They uh, had a case where uh, my grandmother and my mother and her younger sister were working on the farm drenching sheep. Drenching sheep is where they dip them to get rid of um, maggots and uh, dags as we call them on sheep when the um, Bank of New South Wales and Dalgetty's representatives came out to close on the property and the young bank manager of Bank of New South Wales made the statement, he said, when women are prepared to work like that, my bank's not prepared to close on them. It's a bit different today, but that's how they were in those days and so that's how they kept their property. So she had a very hard life in her early days, but she never complained about it. Um, she always talked about her her family with uh, love and respect for the, what they had to do. There was no choice, it had to be done. She married my father when she was 18 and um, we lived in Bullia. And so we often went out to the, uh, the sheep station and uh, we spent some of our holidays out there and uh, where we learned to ride horses and we learned to round up sheep. Um, we learned how stupid sheep can be and uh, we learned about shearing and all those things. So we had a lot of life experiences, which I think have stood with me in recent years, that um, again, I come back to the fact that if something had to be done, you just had to do it. There was no 
alternatives. Uh, if you wanted um, water and the nearest water was in a water hole a mile away, well, you had to walk there and get the bucket of water and bring it back. And that's what we did because that's what you had to do. You're describing a life which in many ways is hard to imagine now uh, for most of us, particularly uh, living in an urban environment. The What you're talking about, in your mother in particular, but your father as well, yeah. that really is the... Um, a pioneering life, isn't it? I, I have nothing but the greatest respect for the women that built this country. And I class my mother as one of those, and her mother before her, that went out into that environment and raised families and supported their menfolk. And, and they didn't complain about it. They just did what had to be done. And if it hadn't have been for that, we wouldn't have the country we have today. And that's something that I'm extremely proud of. Um, I think about it more now as I get older, uh, that what they were prepared to do to support their menfolk and, and raise families under terrible conditions. I think we were lucky in Bulja because further out on those stations, those women, uh, they lived a very isolating life. The menfolk could be away for weeks at a time on some of those big cattle stations and they would be just there with a couple of um, probably indigenous workers and no one else would come near them for months and months and yet they did it and they raised families and they built this nation. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing story and it's yeah. uh, very much a story of the new world yeah. uh, and creating the, um, the new world that we now live in. Now, just as we might imagine that things couldn't get much more difficult, uh, along came World War Two. Now, um, I understand that uh, this was a pivotal moment for your family, really where everything changed. Yes, uh, my father, who had been in the First World War, um, went to join up again and uh, was not rejected but transferred into what was called the Allied Works Council, which was a civil construction group set up by the government and he was transferred to Townsville so we moved to Townsville as a family in 1942 we lived in Townsville for three years we saw a lot of things in Townsville that um, have changed a lot of ways I think um, we we saw uh, the great um, armament that was brought into the area we saw the American troops the British troops the Australian troops that went through Townsville. It was a pivotal jumping-off point for New Guinea and further places north. Now, that's a lot of people and a lot of nationalities for um, a young boy coming from um, what would have been quite an well, what was an isolated environment. This is an enormous change. Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> we uh, we have some funny experiences. I recall when we first got there. There was a a fish shop and uh, my mother sent us down to get some fish we'd never seen a fish shop in our life fish and chips i mean um, we had fish but we had to catch them in the river yeah, and I cook bet them you, did. yeah. you didn't go and buy them from no. a shop so we went down there and, and this guy says uh, what's your name and we told him he said oh he said he related to captain bly and i said no <laughs> my uncle was a lieutenant <laughs> But uh, the other thing we saw up there was a, a sign, sorry, no credit. 
and we couldn't work out what this word credit meant. Oh, is that right? (laughs) And uh, it was things like that that uh, we experienced that uh, we'd never heard of or thought of or seen or anything like that before in our lives. And and to see the the Townsville Harbour, I mean, with that much water, we didn't know there was that much water in the world. Uh, And then when we went across to Magnetic Island, there was even more water. (laughs) Uh, The fact you couldn't drink it was immaterial, but as kids, it was it was a wonderland to us. And uh, and uh, but we got used to it. And um, Townsville was a great experience for me. Uh, We learnt a lot, and uh, probably one of the defining moments in Townsville. Well, several. uh, In the school, you asked about being a bit of a rebel. um, Oh, okay. Here it comes. Uh, we uh, we used to uh, play up quite a bit, but we had a teacher, and oddly enough, his name was Payne, Mr. Payne, and he was deaf, and uh, we couldn't work this out. And uh, he was forever catching us talking and all this, and he wasn't looking, and we never understood it. And when I say his name was Payne, he lived up to his name too. I mean, he could wield the cane, and uh, he did regularly. But what he was doing, of course, he wore glasses and he would get the reflection from the blackboard with his glasses and he could see who was talking and who wasn't. And it took us quite a while to work that out. And uh, once we worked it out, we were okay after that. But uh, it was a good learning lesson too about uh, just everything you see is not always the way it is. No. But uh, no, we were there and, uh, you know, we uh, had great... And in Townsville they had picture theatres, you know, things where you could go and see Roy Rogers and uh, things like that. It was wonderful and, uh, you know, life had really become a great thing. And But then the other side of it came and uh, as my father in his work with the Allied Worst Council drove a, a ration truck, um, his job was to take the food to the various work camps that they had up there in in Townsville. And he often brought home to our place um, soldiers that he'd met uh, and they were a bit lonely or something like that. I can remember a British Marine who came to our place and uh, had a meal with us and told us a bit about his life in in, uh, England and what he was doing. And we had many people like that, even a couple of Americans at various stages came, my father sort of had an empathy with these soldiers, having been in the First World War himself overseas. But the big thing that sticks in my mind is uh, that we used to go out to a place called Cluden, and uh, this is where the train tracks were. And there was only a single line between Brisbane and Townsville. And of course all the troop movements came up through there, All, all the goods trains had to come through. And the hospital trains from New Guinea, would the people would be brought back to Cairns and then they'd be railed to Brisbane. But often spent all day at the siding in Townsville. Well, there wasn't a siding, it was just on the side of the track. And uh, in the heat and the sun up there, uh, it was very bad, actually. And uh, we saw there the nurses and the Red Cross people who had to look after these guys. Some of them were limbless, some who were shell-shocked um, and many other various conditions and uh, it it was a, a sobering thing and uh, my father had often said to us that war was not a good thing and he showed us here just what the other side of it is 
and he used to uh, take all the fruit and any drinks and that that he had on board and we used to distribute them to these troops on the side of the road to the nurses and that and uh, we often went around and helped them by doing that or getting water for the the guys that they were on the side of the that got out of the trains because the trains were so hot and uh, and any bit of shade they could get they would be sitting in or standing in or laying in depending how they were and I think in retrospect it it, it did uh, make a big impression on me uh, later in my life when I thought more about it but at that time it was normal Uh, it was the sort of thing that you uh, understood uh, that's what happened in war Uh, uh, we didn't understand that until we saw it but as a young person you accept these things and in later life is where you realise what these have done to shape your thinking. Yeah. So Townsville was a, a, a pivotal part in my life, I think, when I think back on it. Um, David, can I ask you about your parents? The, you haven't mentioned anything about their faith and the role that religion paid for your, for your parents, your family, and for you as a child. I was just wondering, was that, uh, was that important? No, it wasn't in our life. Um, there was no church in Bullia. Um, um, the Church of England used to come every now and again. The Catholic priest would come through occasionally. Um, I think the Methodist guy came occasionally. We were christened Methodists. Huh? Uh, but other than that, no, it didn't play a big part in our lives. Um, um, I don't want to be controversial about it, but I think I saw too many things to could be worried about religion. Yeah. Now, mm. as as the interviewer for this podcast, I love a bit of controversy. <laughs> um, so don't please don't hesitate to chuck in a bit of spice. We can um, we can deal with the complaints on Facebook later. David, there are many stories of the men coming back from World War One uh, with horrific injuries and permanent disabilities, and the difficulties that they experienced, um, both in coming to terms with their own injuries, but also the attitudes of the society around them, um, whether they were considered to be uh, an awkwardness or an embarrassment that, um, uh, that people didn't know how to deal with them or speak to them, um, but also I think an element of them no longer being a real man, that they had lost their masculinity. By the time of World War Two, and you were seeing these injured men, uh, was there still a hangover of those attitudes and those difficulties? I think there was, um, and there probably still is today, actually. Um, see, I think it's more fear than than anything else that people have that... Uh, you know the old saying there there go I but for the grace of God there goes I I mean the thing is that people don't know how to deal with people with disability they they don't understand that that person is still the person they were all that's changed is some physical attribute and uh, but what we saw up there um, and I think later on was shown that the biggest injuries that were done to our troops were psychological oh. um, 
and it was um, we used to call it shell shock or tropo disease and all that sort of thing. Of course, now we know it's different. It's a it's a real mental condition, and uh, it's something that no one was ever brought up to have to experience, and yet they did. They had to experience the the horror of um, seeing their friends around them being mutilated and killed and actually doing the same thing to other people themselves and uh, this this has uh, this must have had an enormous effect on on these people's lives i know my father never ever talked about the first world war other than to say that it was wrong um, and yet he he was wounded in france and it wasn't until many years later just recently that i went over there and had some understanding of what he they went through but they didn't talk about it and oh. and really if you want a political opinion i'm amazed that this country and england have never had a revolution because quite frankly with what was done to our troops in both of those wars it actually should have caused a revolution against the class society that we lived in and david do you think that's what your father meant by saying the war was wrong Oh yes, very much so. He, I mean, he never hesitated in going to join up the second time uh, because he believed that's what we should do. But he knew in his own heart that it was all wrong, that we shouldn't have a war, we shouldn't have this sort of thing, because the only people who really suffered in wars were the the people who were in the front lines, the people who were there being destroyed whether they were civilians or soldiers whoever the people that were there and then those that came home and and if you think about you know what the women and children had to put up with when the, their husbands and brothers and children and that were away at war and then they had no idea what was happening to them i grew up with people who were prisoners of war and and I know what happened to them because we knew about them when we were kids, but we didn't know what actually caused it all. But we saw what the results were, and it to me it uh, and I think back of those hospital trains and those nurses and Red Cross people that did that work with those soldiers was something that's lived with me all my life. I think and. Uh, I understand that it's not just the person who's injured is the one that's damaged by these sort of things. It's the people who have to live with it. Mm. Oh, yes, we, um, you know, we, uh, my father, you know, he was one of these sort of people that looked after, liked to look after other people. He had a good opinion of other people. So he, when guys were away from home, we often had them in our home for a meal, um, there was no advantages to us or anything like that, but just that it was a great learning experience. And uh, he'd meet someone, you know, he'd go down the pub and have a beer after work. And you couldn't have too many in those days because they were all rationed. So he'd meet a well, guy there. Beer was rationed. Oh, yeah, everything was rationed. That is a serious situation. <laughs> I, I knew it was a dire situation, but I had no idea what they were actually facing. Yeah, they closed the hotels at 6 o'clock. Oh, no. <laughs> and... Uh, but uh, so he'd often. There should have been a revolution. I agree completely. <laughs> so they would have brought. He often brought people home and uh, uh, guys that he'd met, you know, and they'd come and have a meal at our place and things like that. Although rationing was food and that was very severe in the south, it wasn't up there. We didn't have any trouble with food rationing. Um, probably because my father drove a ration truck. But uh, <laughs> but uh, no, so we were there and we met these people and we heard their stories and. 
we saw some of them we never 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 ever see them again and we didn't even know whether they lived or died you know it was just one of those things i was in townsville when the americans bombed townsville and they dropped three bombs on townsville because they wanted all the civilians to leave and no one would leave well they left after those three bombs were dropped i can assure you <laughs> the only thing they damaged was they broke a window and knocked down a coconut tree so their, their aim was pretty good damn this war <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that so the, the trains were there to take the people out and they virtually almost emptied the town out. But we stayed because my father was there and we had nowhere else to go anyway. We either went to Bullier or we stayed in Townsville. And um, so that was there and uh, so we saw that. And um, it uh, and my father then, after the war was concluding, he was transferred to Darwin. David, I understand from talking to you earlier that, um, in fact, the war did come to Townsville a little bit more than just the uh, the three the three bombs that uh, hit the city. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Probably one of the more horrific things that we witnessed um, was that we went down to the Strand in Townsville and we watched the recovery of a Catalina flying boat. This was an American plane, American Army plane, and um, what had actually happened was that when the plane came into land, it hit something in the water, and I don't know what it was, and it broke the throats and it sank in Townsville Harbour. And the escape hatch in those planes was through the top of the turret. And the first guy who tried to get out was a very big man, and he got wedged in the, in the opening and so the rest of the crew were all drowned um, oh, it's a tragic in this story. plane. And um, I think there was a crew of five or seven, I can't remember the oh, exact number. Yeah. And um, we actually witnessed the recovery of this aeroplane when they got it up and took the bodies out. And uh, in those days they weren't quite as sensitive about um, hiding things as they were nowadays and um, these soldiers or these bodies were brought ashore within a hundred metres of where we were and uh, we saw all this happen and um, and there was another case where we used to go a bit further out of Townsville on one of our runs and beside the road was a a runway where the B-17s used to come in and land. The B-17 was an American bomber and it had a rear gun a gunner and we actually witnessed there a, a case where a, a plane landed and the rear gunner had been shot up and was of course dead and uh, they just um, pulled the code out and the guy just sort of was pulled out and well what remained of him and they just um, took the plane to the end of the runway and they had a big hose and they just hosed it out and set it up again um, so that's how it operated and these are the things we saw as kids and um, they were, at that time, we thought they were interesting. I realise now how bad they were and how shocking it was, but that's how things were in those days and war is a terrible thing and it probably brings people out in the worst way that you can think about them, but that's how, that's how it was. Yeah, there's a dramatic time uh, and, um, and extraordinary events. Now, um, I understand that um, that circumstances changed again for your family and caused another uh, major move. 
Yes, um, <clears throat> her father was then transferred to Darwin for the reconstruction after the Second World War, and uh, so we just, as a family, were off to Darwin, mum, dad, and the three kids, and um, so we drove from Mount Isa to Darwin in a Chev car, mum, dad, and three kids, and uh, no service station, no motels, we just, on the way, we camped on the side of the road under, under the... Um, the stock route tanks. Uh, we got fuel from the convoys coming south with material to help us to get there, and it took us nearly two weeks to get to Darwin. Two weeks? Yeah, but we got there, and, uh, uh, you know, we were glad to get there. Oh, I imagine you would be. I have to say that in Townsville was the first time I ever lived anywhere we had electricity, so it was good when we got to Darwin we had electricity too, in the initial stages anyway. And so we got to Darwin in 1945. We were the first family there. We arrived in November, and and no school opened until April the next year. So that was a great time to be in Darwin. I was. What do you mean, the first family? We were the first family to go to Darwin after the Second World War. Um, there were no other families up there. Everyone, everyone else was there was either military personnel or LA Works Council. Because they had been evacuated. Oh, yes. Yeah, Darwin was evacuated in 1942, yes. And perhaps track back for the listeners on what it was that caused that. Oh, well, Darwin was bombed in 1942. And we're talking about something a lot more serious than Townsville ever experienced. Oh, Darwin was bombed a lot more than Hawaii was. Um, over 160 separate raids were made on Darwin. Mm, that's extraordinary. And... Uh, Interestingly enough, it was the same uh, fleet of uh, aircraft carriers and the same admiral that actually bombed Hawaii, bombed Darwin, and Broome and Catherine in the Northern Territory. So the, those the places, same Japanese fleet. Yep, same fleet, and uh, and if he'd had his way, the, um, the Japanese would not have gone into Indonesia; they'd have come straight into Darwin. But the but the army generals overruled him. Thank goodness they did. So we arrived in Darwin and um, we were the first family there. There was no school for the six months, so we had a good life. We went swimming every day, we went climbing, we did all sorts of things. The Army and Navy boys all had, both had movie theatres, so we used to go to the movies as often as we liked. They were all outdoors. So now, be... what sort of movies did you like, David? Was it the cowboy movies? Was oh, we, the... we loved Roy Rogers and... Uh, and the Tarzan um, serials and all of those things. Uh, this was this was music for us. And was it also your news? Did it? Did they tell you about the progress of the war at the cinemas? A little bit uh, more propaganda than reality, um, and always very old. I mean, the people in the south never really knew about the real bombing of Darwin. They knew it had been bombed, but they had no idea what had actually happened there. Uh, the censorship was quite severe uh, during the war, and uh, so unless you lived in these places, you really didn't know what happened. There were a lot of great stories told about the evacuation of Darwin. Um, Bunny Austin, who was the Malvern Star dealer, they reckon he got 18 miles out of town before they realised he didn't have a chain on his bike. Is that right? 
<laughs> well, there's nothing like a Japanese fleet right behind you to motivate you, is there? Uh, there's many stories told and, uh, about those sort of things. They reckon the, the, the administrator raced home, grabbed his, uh, his uh, briefcase and took off and left his wife behind. Uh, there's all sorts of stories. Whether they were true or not didn't matter, they were all being told. But we found in Darwin that... Um, the people that came to live in Darwin after we arrived there were those quite a number that had been evacuated, but a lot of guys who had been out of the army had been injured in the army, uh, had uh, problems living in the cities, and had moved north and moved anywhere they could where they could sort of be on their own. To such an extent, there was a lot of people who lived in small shacks and that out in the bush um, who didn't really want to meet with anybody else they had their own demons they were fighting do you uh, think this is coming back to what you were talking about before with the po- what we'd now call post-traumatic stress syndrome? oh i'm sure of it and uh, and the xpows that came up there to live because they couldn't live in the south in the cold because of beriberi and that that they'd had during these camps and uh, we we met a lot of damaged people um when we were kids, um, we saw a lot of people who weren't damaged, but we saw a lot of damaged people. And uh, we, I, I think I got a greater understanding of things in later life because of those early experiences. But Darwin was a great place to grow up, and we were kids. Um, before we moved out of the town, we lived in the town for the first three years, and then or two years actually, and then we moved out to a place called Berrimah, which was nine miles out of town. Uh, well, we didn't have electricity again. Oh, no. And, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't have had a, a local theatre either. either. Roy <laughs> Rogers was over at that oh, stage. Oh, we went to the features on Friday night. Ah, good. You'd come into town. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but we did that, and uh, we had a lot of great experiences. I, uh, we found a, a belly tank out of a, an aeroplane that had, had uh, a mast put in it and a rudder put on it. Some guy must have been keen on sailing, but he didn't have a keel. And my brother and I found this and we decided to sail it. What's Lighted. a belly tank? Well, it was a, a spare petrol tank out of an aeroplane. You it made would, a boat out of an old yeah, oil can? Well, sort of. It's a square thing and uh, rounded on the edges. It was probably about two metres long and about a metre wide and it was flat. So he'd put a, this sailor guy had put a mast in it and he'd put a rudder on it and I, being a sailor he could manage it but of course me being not a sailor I put the sail up and away I went and the tide was going out and away I went alright I was heading out to the Arafura Sea because every time I turned oh, the rudder God. it just went round and round in circles and uh, my brother who was on the wharf and I was supposed to throw him the rope which I did but he missed it <laughs> great and of course away I went you can never trust a little brother I know that <laughs> and I we, am one and we uh, headed out to sea I was heading out to sea well he raced up to the navy station and they spotted me uh, on my way I was going to actually dive overboard and swim for the points there was two points you had to go around and I knew that if I swam across the uh, well, we were very strong swimmers, and uh, would have could have swam across the tide. I could, have, I might have made it. I, uh, there's every chance I wouldn't have. But uh, anyway, the navy came and got me, and uh, the navy did. Yeah, the Australian navy was yeah. called out to save. Yeah. Oh, well, they were the only ones there at the what time. What a tear away! And we, uh, so they, uh, and rather than put me on their boat, they 
took the rope and then they left me behind it and they took off in this boat they had and I was part of how fast it went but it seemed to be going a million miles an hour to me and I'm in the back on this thing and it's bouncing up and down and all the rest of it. I'm like, I'm I don't know if that sounds like fun or terrifying. <laughs> it was fun afterwards. But it was fun. <laughs> and anyway, so that was one of my experiences. So we had a couple of close shaves and we used to go by bike uh, we'd ride out on Friday night and come home Sunday night and we'd be out in the bush and we'd live off the bush and we did those things out camping yeah and uh, w- with your dad or no just us on our own and the some, kids yeah sometimes we went with dad when he was going out on a job somewhere we'd go and we'd camp out we have swags and everything one place we stayed at was um, was an old fettler's hut they called it a bloke who used to work on the railways and um and this place was supposed to be haunted because this old fettler, he kept pigs and he died. He actually must have died in his pig yard because when they found him, his head was off and the pigs had been eating him. Oh, and, of course, the story was that his ghost was always there. And so we A camped. headless ghost as well. Yeah. That's, uh, that makes the story even better. So we camped in this, this place this night because uh, all these ghost stories are there, of course. And I don't know what happened, but somehow or other... There was like a sound, a click, 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 click. Oh my God, what's that? It's the ghost. And, of course, a bright moonlight night up there. And it must have been a cloud went across the sky. Anyway, this shadow went across the floor because the moonlight was shining in this big open window. Well, we took off. (laughs) (laughs) It was four of us. Probably faster than the guy left Darwin on his Malvern star. We took off. I don't think we stopped for about two miles. No, no, there's no reason to stop. <laughs> and uh, we had a lot of funny experiences like that when we were growing up as kids. And um, we knew the Aborigines very well. They, uh, they were there and, um, you know, we knocked around with them. Uh, well, I went to school with the Aboriginal children. Well, I think there was every race in the world in Darwin. And uh, the only value that every kid had was whether he could play football or cricket. That's all that mattered. <laughs> and could you? Well, we all could. We all had to because no one else. And uh, we all played footy. We all played cricket. It didn't matter what your skin colour was or your race or anything. It didn't matter. It just If you were the best footballer, you were the most popular bloke in the school. And uh, if you were the, the dummy, you were the most despised person in the school. And uh, so we uh, did all those things. But life was good. In 1947, my father decided that we would come to Melbourne to visit his mother, who he... Oh, that is down to the big smoke, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. He had not seen his mother in 30 years. Wow. And so um, I, we, we left Darwin. We had a Ford truck. And we stopped the first night in a place called Catherine, 200 miles south of Darwin and we slept in in an old shed there and my father had injured his arm before we left Darwin and he got an infection in it and he became quite delirious actually and uh, so there we were in Catherine there was mum and uh, we had, I had a little sister at that stage Pat she was only one years old and my two brother and sister and we were there and we had the truck and what are we going to do and, and uh, my father said well you drive because I had learned to drive I was only 13 but I'd learned to drive and uh, so I had to drive I drove that truck 400 miles to Tennis Creek 
uh, with my father delirious in the back and my mother in the front with me and she couldn't drive and uh, so we drove to Tennis Creek and then at Tennis Creek we got some a friend of a family and he drove it to Alice Springs and my father went to hospital at Tennis Creek and he stayed there for a week actually and uh, we continued on because we had train tickets to go from Alice Springs to Adelaide. So you left him in hospital and off you went? Yeah, well we had to. Um, oh, fair enough. And, uh, and so we went on and um, we got in the train and yeah, because in those days you, you got the train from Alice Springs to Maree and you changed trains there and then you went to Port Augusta and you changed trains there and you got to Port Piri and you changed trains there and then you got to Adelaide. And I imagine they weren't all just waiting there for you to get from one train to the other. Oh, it was pretty close, you know. Not yeah, too bad? Not too bad. Timetables like, yeah. were... But the, the enduring surprise we had was when we got to Adelaide and all these train tracks, where the heck did they go? You know, there was tracks everywhere because we had our heads out the window looking sure, at Sure, of course you did. And uh, we got to Adelaide and um, I had an uncle, my father's brother lived in Adelaide, and uh, he met us on the station... He only had one leg, he'd blown his leg off in the First World War. Mm. And of course, but we'd seen wounded people, so that was no, nothing to us. Sure. But anyway, the thing, the surprise we got, well, the first thing we saw was a sign for an Eskimo pie. Well, what's an Eskimo pie? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'd never seen these sort of things before no, in our no, lives. No, I can imagine. And uh, a number of things like that. Well, what's an Eskimo actually might have been the first question and what's his point? Oh, I think we knew what Eskimo were, but uh, anyway, so we, we were in Adelaide and then my father came down to Adelaide and he, he actually went to... We probably should explain to some listeners who actually may not have had the joy yeah. of an Eskimo pie <laughs> that it's an ice cream. It has a biscuity mm. wafer on either side of a vanilla chunk of ice cream and certainly chocolate, they were chocolate over the top yes yeah. chocolate that's yeah, right yeah. now it was certainly a, an important part of my childhood also uh, we had some funny experiences we came to melbourne from there and uh, my father met us in adelaide and we drove across to uh, to uh, uh, melbourne and uh, i'll never forget we arrived in melbourne just on dusk drizzling rain of course and my grandmother was standing at the front gate waiting for him and uh how she knew we were going to arrive at that time, I'll never know, but she did. And she was an old Scotch lady. It was as broad as they came. And uh, we had some funny experiences here in Melbourne. We uh, we saw an ad called Hoadley's Violet Crumble Bars. What are they? Yes. <laughs> in Darwin, without refrigeration, we never had chocolate things, you no, know, because no. they, everything melted. Yeah, they couldn't have gotten and, and we saw that. The other experience I often tell people about when we arrived in Melbourne my grandmother was very Scotch kept telling us we were going up to town this day into the city from Newport we were staying and um, she said now make sure you get a half return ticket and okay so we go down to the station three of us and says the station or the ticket boat three half returns please and he said where to and I said back here And that's exactly right. Not very helpful, but it's the correct answer. We were country kids. <laughs> We'd never bought a ticket on a train in our lives sure. or a bus or anything. And uh, so he said, yes, so they don't you want to come back here. Where do you want to go to? Oh, up into the city. Which station do you want to go to? How many are there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's more than one. Oh, so it was a great experience. And, um, you know, we... 
we went to Luna Park. We saw that we couldn't believe they, these. You know, for kids, these were wonderlands. Oh, they yes. really were. Yeah. And uh, and uh, you yeah, think back on it now, I, I, I envy. I, I think my grandchildren have missed out a lot in the fact that they, nothing is a wonder to them anymore because they see it all on television. But to us, everything was a wonder. A tram, you know, we'd never seen a tram before. No, no. In Adelaide, we uh, we they, they had electric trolley buses, and new, where we stayed in Semaphore was at the end of the line. So we hopped in this trolley bus this day, and of course the driver and the conductor are sitting out on the seat having a smoke. And there's buttons all along the wall, so what do the kids do? You press one. And we pressed the button, a buzzer went, and the compressor started up. For them. We got out of there. We thought it was going to take off with no drive. Oh, gosh. We were, we were naive kids, but, yeah. you know, we enjoyed it. Yeah. And then I found the, um, the primer out of the landmine. And now, before we get onto this, this is the, um, the story which we're going to finish with today about mm. um, the event that led to your blindness. Now, oh, we were talking a little bit about uh, your, the development of your character and mm. what we see in later life. Mm. And um, you told us a story earlier about your schooling and your nickname. Yeah, okay. And um, whether it's embarrassing to you or not, I, no. I don't mind. I, no, it's not embarrassing. I, I think that's a great story. And uh, I think people mm. would be very interested to hear about this because mm. it says so much about the David to come. We didn't have a lot in Darwin. The only radio we had was the ABC. And uh, mostly that was the Radio National program we received. There was only the one station. So all our news came through that. And uh, at. Um, quarter to seven every night with a program called News Review and seven o'clock was the news bulletin which went for a quarter of an hour on the radio. So that's where we got all the information and uh, I, I became a bit of an authority on how to run the country apparently because I got a nickname called Ben Chifley. They all called me Ben Chifley because I had an opinion on everything and uh, and it worked out that way. Now, we may not all know the Australian political history, so tell us a bit about Ben. What's the oh. connection there? Well, Ben Chifley was the um, Prime Minister of Australia from 1944 to 1949. Um, he was a Labor Prime Minister, and he was the Prime Minister that was actually Prime Minister when we concluded the Second World War. John Curtin, who was the Prime Minister during the war, died just before the end of the war. Now, I think that story is very telling, David, because people I've spoken to um, who've known you for many, many years will say in the kindest possible way Mm. um, that perhaps you still do have lots of opinions (laughs) on things and uh, and never, never hold back um, from sharing those opinions. And I'm sure that that's a part of what um, created the... Uh, the the doggedness and determination that led to your role in changing the world you live in, uh, which is ultimately going to be what this podcast is all about. Now, we just started to introduce one of those moments where really we can say, as of this time, nothing is going to be the same. Um, so perhaps you can, um, we can go back to the story you of the primer. A lot of things in we found in Darwin as kids was armament that was left around after the war. Um, I can remember my father brought home a truckload of machine gun bullets um, and uh, we had to pull the, the, the head out of them and tip the cordite out and then we sold the, 
the best of it is brass because you've got some money for that. Um, uh, we used to get these bullets and um, we'd get the cordite and pull a bit of it out and bash the end down a bit and light the thing and then throw it. You know, they were, they were our fireworks. We didn't have any other fireworks. Yeah, homemade penny, ba- <laughs> yeah. penny bungers. Yeah. Yes. We did all those sorts of things as kids. We found all this sort of oh, stuff. The, um, the real ones were dangerous enough. Yeah. And then we would... Um, We'd get a, a, a jam tin or something with a hole it, and we'd fill it up with gunpowder and stick it under something or other, a rock or something, and put a trail of uh, gunpowder to it, light the trail and gun duck down behind something and blow the rock up. And we did all those sort of stupid things as kids. But as I said, uh, my daughter wouldn't allow her kids to do what we did. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but we had no trouble at all. But a lot of kids were injured in Darwin. Um, one friend of mine connected to munitions well connected one friend of mine was riding a push bike along the road and um, in Darwin every year after the range they had these big fires that went through that burnt all the grass out oh. and uh, this um, bullet exploded in this fire and the uh, projectile went sideways and hit him on the kneecap as he's riding his oh. push bike along the road I Gee, mean, you can be unlucky <laughs> can't you yeah, he, uh, he ended up with a stiff leg uh, because uh, you know, and things like that happened. Another friend of mine was very badly burnt with um, an incendiary. It burnt his back, burnt his back, and all things like that because it exploded. And we found a lot of stuff like that around. And um, being kids, we played with it. But unfortunately, I found um, three what are called detonators out of landmines. And um, there's one thing we learnt is that you never pulled out a split pin. If you're going to pull out a split pin, you better throw it because that's what was in a hand grenade. And uh, so, so this is the thing that that's, that holds the the pin in place yeah. that stops the grenade from exploding. Yeah. Okay. Once you pull that out and you let the lever go, well, it's, it's going to go it's off. Armed, yeah. yeah. So this dumb dumb thing we had had a, a split pin in it, which I now know if I'd have pulled the split pin out, the whole thing would have fallen apart and nothing would have happened. But anyway, I didn't know that at the time. And uh, so I cut it, the first one in half with a hacksaw. And cut what in half? This detonator. It was, okay. It's about uh, 20 centimetres long, about um, two centimetres across, with yep. round, screwed into a landmine, and it was the primer that set the landmine off. When the hammer hit the top of it, it exploded and set the big charge off. So I, I didn't know that at the time. Um, so we, I cut it in half, and it was interesting. It had a yellow stuff in it. We hadn't seen this sort of stuff before. So I tipped it out on a fire and lit it up. And yeah, it burned up okay. So I opened the next one, and it was different. So of course I had opened the third one, and the third one I got almost through, and. Uh, a spark must have went and oh. it exploded. I had it in a big vice in my father's garage and that's what saved me. I was being right-handed. Uh, the vice was between me oh, sorry, between me and the um, and the explosion and when it fanned up, it, it got me across the face and my hands but the rest of me wasn't damaged at all and uh, it, it did a lot of damage. <laughs> so, Without the table and the vice, it, it would have killed you? Oh, yes. I'd have been killed immediately. Mm. If um, if I'd have been left-handed and standing to the right-hand side of it, I would have copped it. But being right-handed, I was standing behind the vice. Right. And 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 uh, therefore I was saved. Uh, 
Was there anyone with you? No, there wasn't. But a few minutes before, my two-year-old sister was with me. And that was my biggest concern when I, a week or so later, when I started to come to where she was. and But it was turned out she wasn't there. Mm. So that that was the change in my life when that happened. And that was in June 1949. David, thank you very much uh, for um, providing this information about your early life. Um, we're going to finish up at the point that um, you've uh, had the major accident. And obviously, as we mentioned before, uh, this is the moment where everything changes. Nothing is going to be the same after this. And uh, I think that gives us a great point um, to finish up and uh, to start again in our second episode. <laughs>